We seem to be starting the retreat formally tonight without much water. Uh, I'm not sure if you've noticed, but there, we're having a problem with water, the water supply. So please don't panic. Uh, there's a big truck in the driveway and there's people here working on it. In fact, I think they're pumping all the water out of Joseph's well into <laughs> the water system here, so only Joseph will be out without water. <laughs> I have a few announcements before <clears throat> I begin the talk tonight. The, the full schedule will begin tomorrow, so the early morning sitting will start tomorrow at 5.30, so please, if you're a bell ringer, uh, there'll be a bell for the 5 o'clock wake-up and a bell for the 5.30 sitting. Tomorrow, the um, practice leaders will start, and mostly we'll be sitting the sittings with you the next few days. Interviews will start on Monday. Uh, if you're a practice leader, if we're not here, just uh, take the bell and the clock to where you sit and... Um, time the sitting and then ring the bell at the end of the sitting. At the end of the sitting, bring the bell and the clock back up here. And please check the schedule so that you know, you know the full schedule because there is a big change starting tomorrow. Tonight I'll, I'll give a, a medium-length talk and then Steve will uh, give us the refuges and precepts to chant and then we'll have a short sitting. I'd like to talk tonight about being at home in this world. We want so very much to be in the present moment, to be at home in this world. In this practice that we're doing, in the Vipassana practice, we're developing an awareness that isn't identified with experience. It's an awareness that's fully connected to what's happening, and that can feel like a bit of a paradox, this awareness that's non-judgmental, that isn't tied to experience in any way, which means that it's, we're not identified with what's happening. And this means that we develop an inner home. The awareness itself is the inner home or the inner security. And this awareness is stronger than experience itself. In this awareness that gives us this deep inner security, um, we change our relationship to what's happening. You know, we develop a freedom within experience, and this is what I mean by being at home in this world. I'd like to draw an analogy between this kind of awareness or a feeling that uh, this awareness gives us in terms of inner security and turtles. I was reading recently about turtles, and if you can just get an image of 
a turtle in your mind, whatever, whatever kind may be, it's a snapping turtle or a painted turtle or a desert tortoise. Um, whether in water or on land, a turtle is always at home. Turtles move at their own speed in their own time, kind of like yogis. Turtles have survived all upheavals of nature since the dinosaur, and they have done it with composure. Their shell is their home, and they can survive on as little as one breath every two hours. In this book, um, it called turtles bold explorers. And I found that an interesting thing to call these beings that um, are so protected, in a way, with, with this shell that is their home. This shell that is their home is what uh, this awareness that I'm talking about does for us, this awareness that isn't tied to experience. When we have this awareness, which we can discover, but we can also develop it, Uh, We can be at home in any moment in this world, in any circumstance, and anywhere we are. This is the great adventure that we're on, this development of this awareness. So what holds us on a retreat while we're developing this inner security. There's some outer security that we try to encourage here. Uh, Carol talked about the precepts last night, and Stephen will have us chant the precepts. There's this commitment to protecting life, to not harming. This provides a safe container for us to explore deeply in. It allows us to develop this inner home. The structure of the retreat, as well as the sila, or morality, holds us. The actual form of the practice, the sitting, the walking, the techniques, these are 2,500-year-old precious teachings that we try to give you as purely as we can. These are meant to hold us while we go deep inside. So there's the outer security of the form and structure of the retreat, of the morality that we attempt to practice. Uh, There's the silence. And then in terms of the practice itself, we develop concentration. And this concentration uh, brings about a stillness of mind, which is essential for the exploration to happen. We can't explore, we can't see clearly when the mind is scattered or disturbed. So mostly at the beginning we tend to be emphasizing Um, the stillness of mind and the gradual stilling of the mind allows the gradual exploration so that we can be bold explorers. 
what also enables us to do this bold exploration is this awareness that I'm talking about. It's an awareness where um, we can let go of the outer security. We let go of the past. We let go of the future. And see if we can see clearly, you know, what's just happening in the present moment. It's, it's, it's such a courageous thing to do. Why? <laughs> Why does it seem so difficult? It's such a good idea to be in the present moment. There are many times that we'll remember that it felt nourishing, that we felt connected, that we felt alive, and yet we forget so many times to be here. Several retreats ago, when I was teaching a retreat, uh, one of the students was experiencing what um, the Buddha called dukkha, which is the first characteristic of existence. He was experiencing this feeling of vulnerability as he was experiencing something in the present moment. Uh, And this was a very, you know, powerful moment for him of feeling like he didn't know what was going to happen next if he let go of the future and the past and was really in the present moment. And and he said, you know, I don't think I really want to be in the present moment. And that's, that's something that we have to acknowledge. You know, we want to be, and yet, how much are we really here? And I think we have to also acknowledge that there are many moments where it's difficult and, you know, why? Why, why don't we want to be here? What is it that we um, are afraid of experiencing? Sometimes we're afraid of experiencing this vulnerability itself, that we don't know what's going to happen. If we really do come into the sitting, and even for a few moments, if you let go of any kind of anchor, let go of the breath, and just notice what's happening moment by moment, if you really do, just totally let go of control. There'll be this incredible stream of thought, or body sensations, or sounds, or emotions. It's like this amazing process that we call my life is happening. And it's this profound world of change. This is the second characteristic of existence the Buddha taught, anicca. If we're really at home in this world, can we be with this incredible profundity of change? Because of this incredible profundity of change, we never know what's going to happen. That's difficult to kind of sink into moment by moment, over and over. It's not so easy at times. So how do we deal with this kind of existential predicament that we take birth into as human beings? In this world of change, what protects us? The Buddha taught that a guarded mind brings happiness. A guarded mind brings happiness. 
And then he started to talk about the four foundations of mindfulness as the way to protect ourselves as a guarded mind. Uh, He taught mindfulness of the body, mindfulness of feelings, mindfulness of consciousness, mindfulness of the contents of consciousness. He encouraged us to explore all these aspects of existence of our life with this non-judgmental, non-identified attention. So, so much of the practice is concentration and so much of the practice is exploration. It's such an exciting journey that you're going to be doing. It's um, so inspiring. What usually protects us is aversion or attachment or delusion. We've developed um, this defense system of identifying with experience, uh, not only in this lifetime, but if you believe in lifetimes, we've kind of developed this kind of defense system that um, is very hard at times to see through, to penetrate, to see clearly how we are relating to experience. Is there a way to be free from this existential predicament? So the defense system is any time that we're identifying with what's happening, meaning any time that we feel like I am my body, or I am my heart, or I am my mind, I am my thoughts, I am my anger, I am my fear. That's all um, identification. Identification is when we're referring back to I, we're referring back to being a separate self, and that identification is a prison for us. The guarded mind, the Buddha said, a guarded mind brings happiness. A guarded mind is really, anytime we look closely, investigate, inquire, you know, what's happening right now? How can I see clearly? Do we control our thoughts? Do we control our emotions? Do we control our body processes? When we experience aversion to unpleasantness, um, there's a feeling of suffering because we'll be pushing away the experience that's happening in the present moment. And that pushing away or withdrawing from the experience is the feeling of an I. We feel separate in that moment and we suffer. It's just a moment of aversion but we suffer in that moment. Anytime we're attached to something pleasant, we'll feel that sense of separation. We're holding on, and there'll be that sense of I, or identification. Anytime we're deluded, uh, in that moment of delusion, we feel separate, and we suffer because we're identified. It's important to remember that this only happens in one moment of not seeing clearly. In that moment, we might be lost. We might not be seen clearly. But the next moment, we can see clearly. It's just a momentary 
uh, sense of being lost. And then the next moment we might feel at home because the mind is guarded again. We're seeing clearly again. The practice, maybe some of you have heard many of us say, it's incredibly simple. You know, it's so simple and yet it's so hard to remember. You know, and that's why we keep coming back to practice. It's just remembering and remembering and remembering and remembering. Hopefully, we all come to practice out of a sense of compassion for ourselves. And the more we wake up to this uh, subtle process of identifying and see the suffering in it, uh, sometimes it can be uh, shocking, you know, that that's what's going on, on that kind of a subtle level. But once we start really seeing it clearly, there's this great possibility that we see to be free in it. So often we wake up to aversion, we wake up to attachment, we wake up to delusion, as well as waking up to being at home in this world. Both happen. They're both important in the retreat. And in, in one moment of mindfulness, in the first part of that moment, there's a remembering to be here. There's a remembering to be in the present moment. And that moment is so powerful. It not only gives us that present moment, it gives us our life in that moment. It gives us a sense of being home. And we experience that many times in a day whenever you remember to come back to the present moment. There's such a power in that. It gives us that moment, but it also plants a seed for another moment of remembering. So it's doing two things. It's giving us that present moment, which in a way, that would be enough. If it did just that, that would be plenty. But it's also planting a seed for another moment of remembering. We can't control when that moment will happen. It might be that we're here for one moment and then we're lost for several minutes or several seconds. Uh, But that next moment where we go, oh, oh yeah, thinking, or here again, hearing, remembering, uh, that gives us another moment of mindfulness, of being here, and it also plants the seed for another moment of awareness. As, as we mature in the practice, we often have much more acceptance of being lost, of the times when we do get distracted or we do wander. You know, we, we get so that we know that that will happen. And out of that deep acceptance, instead of struggling with the wandering, instead of struggling with getting lost, because we just allow it to be there, uh, there's less energy put into fighting and there's more energy freed up into being here in the next moment of remembering. The more we accept the wandering, not giving into it necessarily, but accepting it when we notice it happens, uh, allows us to be here even more. There's more energy freed up to be here. 
So this ability to be at home in the in our life, in the present moment, uh, it gradually builds. If we don't struggle with the times of being lost, but have this commitment, this very simple but pro- profound commitment to do the best we can to be here, you'll notice that it will develop. You'll have more of these moments of the presence of this uh, awareness. Usually at the beginning of a retreat, we tend to emphasize awareness of body, awareness of the movement of the breath, awareness of this appearance and disappearance of the breath, the appearance and disappearance of body sensations, uh, pleasant physical sensations, unpleasant physical sensations, neutral physical sensations. Uh, We'll talk a lot about how the body, you can start to see it, the body as this constantly transforming process of earth, air, fire, water. we'll start to see more clearly the nature of the body. We're not so identified with the body as being me, I, or mine. Over time of just noticing the body sensations come and go, come and go, over and over. The third characteristics of existence that the Buddha taught, anatta, we can learn to be at home in this world Um, by seeing more clearly through the illusion that we're a separate self. Seeing more clearly that uh, the body is a constantly changing transformation of earth, air, uh, fire, and water doesn't mean that nothing is there. It just means that we see clearly that there's no separate me or I there. And this is meant to free up any sense of identification with it as being me or I. When I was on retreat this year, I had a a little mole that I thought was a a, a mole on my left lower eyelid. And, and, And each day I would have this different experience where the first day of the retreat, it started to bleed. And I went, oh no. And then by the end of the day, it would start to dry up and it would um, not be bleeding anymore and I wouldn't see anything. And I'd say, oh good, it disappeared. And then the next day, it would start to bleed again and I'd say, oh no. (laughs) And then that next night, it would dry up again and disappear and I'd say, oh good, it's gone, it disappeared. And this happened like day after day. It would bleed (laughs) in the morning all day and then disappear and I'd think, I don't have to deal with this anymore. You know, yay. And then the next morning it would be bleeding again. And I would watch that movement of mind between, you know, it's here, bad, (laughs) you know, it's here, bad, the bleeding is bad, and then it's gone, good. Uh, Eventually I had to go to the doctor and deal with it. Um, But over and over again I would watch that, it's mine, it's gone, (laughs) good. And then back again, oh, it's mine, bad. Uh, It's so amazing to watch that process of identification, the suffering with it, and then 
hopefully, the wisdom of seeing clearly that it's not mine. Not mine doesn't mean I didn't go to the doctor and take care of it. It means we we see clearly, even though it's not mine, we have this great responsibility for ourselves, but we don't take it personally. There's so many ways that awareness can give us um, can give birth to the experience of being at home in this in this world. There's so many levels. Uh, just a level that's that can seem, can seem very simple is just the actual fact of inhabiting ourselves. You know, how much are we really intimate with our leg? You know, or what we call you know my lips. I remember the first time on a retreat where I really felt like my awareness really sank into, you know, my little pinky on my left finger. There was such joy in that experience of having the awareness sink very deeply into this area of the body I'd never inhabited before. And I never even knew I hadn't inhabited it before until these tears of joy came uh, and I felt this presence of awareness there. You know, don't underestimate any way in which the practice and the awareness can open us up and help us be here more fully. It might happen on a kind of deep level of understanding that we're not separate, or it might be just that we're really more here than ever. That's a big achievement for most of us. The second foundation of mindfulness is mindfulness of feelings. The first was mindfulness of body. Second is mindfulness of feelings. And this doesn't mean emotions. It means... um, any time we have an experience in the moment. Uh, each, each moment of consciousness, there's a pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral feeling. The way we tend to develop security is uh, by pushing away the unpleasant or holding on to the pleasant. You know, this is just the human development our search for security tends to come around this identification with the pleasant and the holding on for pleasure and the identification with the unpleasant as something wrong and pushing it away. With uh, with the unpleasant, we can withdraw from the experience with fear or we can push the experience away with more of an aggression. Each one is a form of aversion. Understanding this aspect of of experience, the unpleasant, pleasant, neutral, is this incredible place where we can break the pleasure-pain syndrome, the prison there. when we experience aversion to unpleasantness, we often have the sense that I don't want this, or I hate this. Uh, And if we experience, say, aversion to some person, 
with, with this mindfulness, with this protection of mindfulness, we can actually uh, explore what we don't like with a person. Maybe we don't like their behavior patterns or some behavior pattern. Maybe we don't like their voice. Maybe there's an unpleasant feeling, you know, with the, their eyelashes. But it's really interesting to start identi- uh, investigating how it happens that we don't like some people. All around this uh, level of unpleasantness, when we start to see it, we usually stop disliking the person. We see that it's this one little tiny aspect that isn't the person at all. It's just this little piece. It's so liberating. Or, if we have the experience of really liking somebody or being attached to someone, we can explore what is it that we're attached to. You know, maybe we caught, you know, when we looked deeply into their eyes and there was some pleasure. Or maybe we liked their sandals, you know, or their sweater, or they have pleasant teeth or hair. Or maybe there's some pleasant behavior pattern sound. Uh, It's so fascinating to see what we get attached to and then build up this whole thing that this person is wonderful and this person is terrible. I'm sure you'll have plenty of chance to investigate this part of life here. There are some people here you'll like right away, some people you'll dislike right away, some people you'll be neutral to. And then to see if you can see through that. Even if you just worked with that for three months, it would be very liberating to understand that part of our life. The third foundation of mindfulness is mindfulness of consciousness itself, which tends to be a little more subtle we can be aware of mind and matter. We can be aware of, say, if you're aware of the movement of the breath, we might be aware of pressure or warmth, which are the physical sensations, that's matter. We can focus on the physical, or we can focus on the awareness or the knowing of it. The focusing on the knowing of it tends to be a little more subtle, uh, both can be liberating. If you see how um, easy it is for us to identify with our body as being mine, it's even more, (laughs) there's a greater tendency for us to identify with our mind as being mine. If we haven't tended to look at this part of the practice, you know, if we've really focused on physical sensations or pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, often this third foundation of mindfulness can be interesting, but subtle. So there's mindfulness of body, of unpleasant, pleasant, neutral feelings, of consciousness itself, of knowing, of mind itself. And the last foundation of mindfulness that the Buddha taught is 
mindfulness of the contents of consciousness. As we have started the instructions in the morning and you notice we're emphasizing hearing, hearing consciousness, knowing that hearing is happening. That's the contents of consciousness, hearing consciousness, smelling, touching, tasting, thinking. in this, in this particular part of the Buddha's teaching, he included the hindrances, the seven factors of enlightenment. Uh, but to just, to just know, if you just kept it to seeing, hearing, um, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking, that would be a lot to pay attention to. Just another way of looking at this one is to think, anytime you think, I am, I am hearing, or I am thinking, or I am sleepy, or I am restless, or I'm angry. This is all this particular foundation of mindfulness. For example, thoughts come and go by themselves, will not identify with them as being me, or I, or mine. This awareness is such protection. It's that aha, you know, that feeling of freedom. It's the inner home. The four foundations of mindfulness are totally inclusive. You know, they're meant to include any moment of experience that's possible in our human world or in this world itself. The, the awareness that isn't identified or tied to experience allows us to be at home in this world, to be fully here, to be fully connected but not lost in the experience. So much of the time we tend to be, maybe we're very connected very connected with our experience, but we might be identified. Or maybe we're, you know, um, here, but we're very distant, we're detached, but we're not connected. We tend to go out of balance that way. Uh, But when the practice is in balance, there'll be that sense of being here, but detached. There's this balance. Stephen, my daughter, um, is, she's 19 now, and she's at her second year of college. She wasn't sure she wanted to go back this next year, so we talked a lot about college, and I was sharing a lot of my experiences. So I brought back a lot of memories. It's like I'm reliving <laughs> those years from a different kind of awareness at this point. And I was remembering recently that in my last year of college, I hadn't taken any physical education courses in in the college I went to. You had to have a certain amount of credits of phys ed to graduate. So I was stuck with a situation where I had to, I was student teaching full time, uh, but I needed a credit of physical education to graduate from school. And I really didn't want to go another year. So I saw, I went through the catalog and I saw um, a course called mountain climbing 
this was many years ago, so I thought that meant that we were going to go hiking. And I thought, oh good, that sounds like a great course for me. So I signed up one credit, student teaching, this is going to be a great year. Uh, and I walked into the gym and there were all these ropes and pitons and hammers and all men in the course, there wasn't one woman. And it was a rock climbing course, you know, where you were you know, going up these you know, cliffs, sheer cliffs with ropes. And it's not exactly my style. Um, <laughs> I find just a walk to be an invigorating, challenging experience. So rock climbing isn't exactly my level. But I really wanted to graduate. <laughs> so I took this course. Uh, I don't think you can imagine all the amazing experiences. First you start with what they call a chimney where you climb up between these two rock cliffs but you always have three points that you're connected to. You have your two feet and your arm that you're going up into these sheer rock cliffs but without any rope. You know, you can fall, you can plummet down to your death at any second but you have these three points always um, touching. So that, I managed to get through that first day of that. Uh, that was I think that's called the chimney. Then the next Saturday, they had us going backwards over these, you know, rock cliffs, you know, just goodbye. <laughs> and then I survived that because there was always two feet touching. And then we started up uh, these cliffs. Um, but my greatest challenge of that course was when we were going backwards over a cliff they called it free fall, where you, you're, you're against, you know, your feet are against the rock, but you're going completely <laughs> down backwards. And then there's nothing, you know, there's no rock, there's an abyss. And then eventually you hit the rock again. But I thought it was interesting, it was called free fall. And I remember kind of going down to the point where there was nothing to hold on to. You know, absolutely nothing. Uh, and I survived it, and I just stayed in the present moment, kept going down, <laughs> down, down. But it reminds me so much of the practice. The practice isn't so dangerous. You know, you're not sitting on a zafu, and you're not going to plummet to your death uh, in that moment physically if you let go of the past and the future and just be in that moment. But there is that element of free fall if you're in the present moment. And that's why it's so hard. It's really this total letting go of the past, this total letting go of the future. There's really nothing to hold on to. And it's so wonderful when we do it. And there's such a freedom in it. There's such a power in it. And yet we forget. We grab on. You know, we grab on. We grab on. Then we let go. Uh, so I'd encourage you to see if you can free fall once in a while and see if it's okay. That's the practice. You, you know, we might forget again, but then the free fall again. If we get lost, um, when we lose the thread of the present moment, I'd like to encourage you to remember this song that I heard recently. Living in Hawaii, um, 
The biggest ranch in the world is in Hawaii on the Big Island. It's called the Parker Ranch. And recently I heard a song about the story of a, a cowboy that was riding along on his horse, and he fell really deeply with his horse into a lava tube. Uh, and the song is sung by a man who is, um, had been battling with cancer and just died this year, so it's a kind of poignant song for us in Hawaii because his music is cherished by all of us who live there. And it's a, it's a song in Hawaiian, uh, part in English, part in Hawaiian, but the, the line that's quite interesting is, Oh, never mind. If you fall, it's okay. You just get up and ride again. Oh, never mind. If you fall, it's okay. You just get up and you ride again. So whenever you lose the thread of the present moment and get lost, it's okay. You'll just get up (laughs) onto the present moment and you'll ride again. Let's have a good time. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.